Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. We are here in season five, and if you've been following along with us, that you know that together, Doug and I interview a guest on each episode. But on occasion, Doug and I have the chance to interview leaders and pastors one-on-one just to mix things up a bit. And this is one of those episodes. And on future episodes, Doug will be interviewing leaders one-on-one as well. I'll introduce our guest in just a moment, but there will be no outro, no conversation between Doug and I on the back end, just this great, engaging conversation with a faith leader who we want to introduce to you. Today's guest is Tim Sorens. He's a pastor, a social entrepreneur, and co-founding director of The Parish Collective. He's also the co-author of the book, The New Parish. He's the co-founder of the Inhabit Conference and the Leadership in the New Parish Certificate Program at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, where he graduated from. He recently released a new book entitled Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are with InterVarsity Press. He and his wife have two boys and live in Seattle. Tim is a conspirator of hopeful movements, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Tim Sorens. Tim, thanks for being on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. What a joy to be here with you, JR. It's always great to be with you, Tim, and I'm so glad we get this conversation together and you being a pastor and you're a conspirator, conspirator of hopeful movement, which I just love. That's, that's when I think of you, that's what comes to mind. But you have a new book out, Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. And I want to do something weird. I actually want to quote from your book, while you're in front of me, but then what I'd love for you to do is then respond to that quote, because I think that's a good jumping off point here uh, for us. So uh, in the introduction of the book, you said, on the one hand, millions of mostly young people are giving up on the church. It just doesn't make sense to them. And as a result, are placing their attention, hope, and time where they believe more change can happen. On the other hand is a movement that can sound an awful lot like make the church great again. But both of these impulses make a profound mistake in asking questions about the church before asking questions about what God is doing. Ironically, the more obsessively we focus on the church, the harder it is to focus on God who's making all things new and is active in our everyday lives. I love that quote, but as we listen, as pastors are listening in, I want to just unpack that a little bit more because pastors are professional Christians paid to love Jesus, right? I mean, their job is to focus on the church. At least some would think that. So unpack that quote a little bit here for us, Tim. Well, you know what? So here's, here's how it is, at least for me. Maybe you've heard this and other listeners have heard this idea of like, if you're trying to be happy, you can't try and focus on being happy. That's like a gift you receive through the side door when you focus on other things. And I think that there's something about that for us as pastors and, and broadly for us as the church without ever meaning to. And this is totally understandable, especially for pastors. But I think it's a slippery slope to think that our primary energy should actually be on fixing the church, growing the church, making the church better. All of that is completely understandable. Hmm. And yet, I think it sets us up in a way that we can go down paths that we never intended to. Hmm. 
And so what I'm trying to do in part with this book is to say, hold on a second. Maybe that isn't the fundamental question. Maybe that's not the most important question, even though it is logical and even emotionally, like we might like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I think we need to fight that urge and say, before we ask the church question or the church growth question or the church health question, or even survival, which a lot of us are feeling right now, we need to have the discipline to ask the God question. And I think that actually sends us down a whole different path, specifically what God is up to. And when we're asking that question, we're kind of unfurled into having to ask that question within a particular context. We're um, having to ask it with real people in real places, with very real situations. And at least for me, and in my experience, and in, in being in lots of different neighborhoods all over the country, that actually sends us down an entirely different journey. Mm. And I think it's the journey that we need to go down. I think it's the most important invitation of God right now. Mm. And I'll conclude with this and this question. I, I think it is the way that we discover how to be the church in our everyday lives. I think if we have the discipline to ask that God question of God, what are you doing? What are you doing around me, out ahead of me, right in front of me? If we ask that together as a community of people, I do think it's going to prompt the healthiest questions of what does it mean for us to be the church? Mm. So will we get to the church questions? Absolutely. I just don't think that we can start there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. In fact, as you're talking, Tim, it reminds me so much of of Matthew 6.33, right? Seek first the kingdom and everything else will take care of itself, right? right. But somehow, pastors, we've thought, uh, seek first the local church and then everything else will take care of itself. How do we get, how did we get here? How did we get this so skewed or backwards? Well, in some ways, <laughs> here's an idea. All of us love, or at least at some point, we like the idea of movements of any kind, right? Movements can be romanticized, and I'm probably one of those kinds of people that can romanticize them. But movements, if they get underway, then they tend to need to be, you know, funded and <laughs> sustained and structured. And so if we think of the church as a movement, which I absolutely do, I mean, if you read the book of Acts, that is a movement. And yet some of the structural questions begin to be underway, even within that unfurling movement, even how it's chronicled in, in Acts. Mm. And so, well, how do we get there? Well, you know, time goes by and we have to deal with things. And again, it's a slippery slope. We, we are trying to do our best to deal with what's right in front of us. And it's really, really easy to have the most urgent things crop out and take away from the most important. And over time, I think we find ourselves um, in increasingly perhaps survival mode. I mean, the, the rap on institutions, and I'm not like for the record, I'm not an anti-institutional guy. I think they're critical. And in fact, I don't think that cultures change without them, mm -hmm. but it is true that, you know, sometimes institutions can begin to think that their North star is their own survival. Yeah. Well put. And of course that gets us in trouble. Mm -hmm. It can. Sure. 
Yeah. And let's talk about this because this idea of kingdom or church first and how we kind of put the cart before the horse on that. One of the things that I love, and I'm so glad you featured in the book, is Simon Sinek. And he talked about the three circles, right? And start with why and then how and then what and how often organizations it's what and then how and then why. And it gets so fuzzy. And talk about that. Uh, unpack those three Sinek circles a little bit. And if you aren't familiar with Sinek, we're not, it's it's not C-Y-N-I-C. His last name is Sinek, S I. N-E-K. So it's the cynic circle as a lot of people refer to it. But talk about how you've adapted those ideas of the why, the how, and the what, and how that's reflected in the Christian story. Because this sounds like what you're talking about. If, if Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, no. I, I mean, so I had a bit of a personal light bulb moment while reading this book. Uh, well, actually, like most people, I saw that TED Talk first, and then I got the book. Yeah, it's sure. Like, listeners you know, like can just Google him, and the, the TED Talk has you know, millions and millions of views. And, um, you know, like yourself, I have traveled around the country and even other parts of the world, primarily on the quest to discern what God's up to and to be encouraging church leaders and, and churches and entrepreneurs and developers, et cetera, et cetera. But in my journeys and even in my own practice, the question of like, what is the church and what is it for? That is just, it feels like it's up for grabs. It just, mm. the practical imagination of what the church is and maybe more importantly, what it's for. It just feels like if you ask 10 people, you're going to get 29 answers. I mean, it's, um, so the, the kind of collective confusion I feel like we all have on, on that is real. So when I read this book, it was a light bulb for me because, Oh, maybe this is a part of what's happening. Or at least I think this is happening within my own experience. And that is what Simon Sinek says is that, we're consistently just talking about what we do. Mm. So in church world, we talk about our programs. We talk about our, maybe our buildings or our new initiatives or the new preaching series or whatever. And that's totally understandable. It's not wrong. It gets to the conversation we just had. It's just honestly not that interesting. Mm. What he says is that people don't buy what you're selling. They buy why you're selling it. And so if we can't clearly communicate the, the why, what I call in the in the book, in, in this particular book, my book, the big why, then we're going to lose people. And I, what I think has happened, and this goes right back to what we were just saying, I think over time and understandably, we have mistakenly put the church itself in the center as the big why. Mm. And it just, honestly, it doesn't hold like I don't think that God intended it this way. I really don't believe that. Mm. I think the big why is God's dream for creation, God's mm. shalom of everything, the renewal and reconciliation of everything, every single molecule, every person, every relationship. This is the big story that we're called into. That's why so many of us signed up for this ridiculous thing of being pastors, not so we could, you know, fumble around in a spreadsheet or, you know, figure out how to get more people in the door. And yet, you know, without meaning to, maybe that's what we end up spending most of our time doing. And so to, to follow his three circles, he says, if you can get clear on the why, and that is hard work and you can articulate it, then the how you go about that should follow from there, which is critical. And then what you do, hopefully it feels pretty seamless and it, and it makes sense to everybody else. And so what I've actually done with with this book, everywhere you look, is I've essentially reworked these three circles over three chapters. So, kind of the first part of the book, and tried to make the claim that 
God's kingdom or shalom, what I call God's dream, really belongs at the center of the why. And from that, we can work out the how. And, and I'm trying to reorient putting the church as the what as opposed to the why. Still has a critical place, but I don't think it belongs in the center. So God's dream is that center circle. So if we're thinking of it like a bullseye, what's yep. that next ring after God's dream? The next ring is the how. And what I make the case, the title of that chapter is the magic of paying attention. And what I'm getting after there, it sounds like a Sunday school answer because what I put as the how is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that can be like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, we got it. We're supposed to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. But for me anyway, and I think for a lot of other listeners, this is not easy to do. Mm. Um, Like, do we really have the kind of faith and trust to believe that God really is remaking and restoring everything? Mm. That there is not a person that we lay our eyes on where God is not at work. I mean, I was not formed and shaped. I I grew up in a Christian home, a delightful, wonderful home. Went to Christian grade school, went to seminary, all that stuff. That is not my primary posture. It just Mm. isn't. Um, Worse off, if the how of pursuing God's dream, because it's God's dream and not ours, and that's kind of tricky. It is such a slippery slope to think that if we just get, and this is a confession, uh, there's a little... Probably the clickbaitiest subheading of the book is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. How, the clickbaitiest <laughs> is how Rob Bell gave me a savior's complex. And, um, in some ways, it's, it's not his fault at all. It's that we can, without meaning to, like get a vision for what God might be doing and then kind of be like, okay, God, I got it from here. And then not need literally be dependent on God to be active, to be the primary right. agent, to be in, in many ways the hero of the story and not us. And so we continually need, like, how do we pursue God's dream? We have to, have to, have to be pursuing what the Spirit is up to. Mm. And then truly, like, as best we can, it does take faith. It is an art more than it is a science. But mm. otherwise, and this is kind of a Calvin riff, a John Calvin riff. If not, if we're not dependent on the spirit at work, we can do our own thing and we're either going to be successful and we're going to feel sh- pride and think that, okay, I got this. And then we kind of scale that, grow that and fragmentation is going to be waiting on the other end of that. Or we try something and we fail and then there's shame. And so uh, it just sets us up for this kind of cycle of fragmentation if we are not dependent on the spirit. So, mm. you know, again, it can sound like kind of a Sunday school answer, but I think this is like one of the great challenges of our day and of our entire lives, not just for pastors, for all of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. Mm. So the TED Talk, the bullseye, why, then the next ring, how, and then the what, and you're suggesting in the book, God's dream is the bullseye, the next ring is the Holy Spirit, and then the church. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Have you gotten any pushback since the book has come out from other pastors? They're like, no, 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 no. You're devaluing the church. Or are you finding people are saying, man, I I resonate with what you're saying. Well, maybe it's a little bit of, um, you know, confirmation bias. The book has only been out for a little bit and Mm -hmm. delightfully, most people haven't been like, Hey, read the book and it's horrible. Like seek you out. I really wish you hadn't written this book. I haven't gotten a lot of that yet. It could happen. Um, (laughs) 
So, so most of it has actually been like, oh, thank you, because I've been wrestling with this. Of course, I'm a pastor. I love the church. I've given my life to the church, and so have I. But I feel like we've been kind of, again, set up um, in ways that are tricky. So I say there has been more resonance than not. However, um, yeah, I, I don't want to be demeaning of the church. I still believe um, the church is the most beautiful movement, organism, organization on the planet. But um, it's because of that love and because of the hope of what the church represents that I feel like this matters too much. So, mm, mm. Um, and, and you know, this book also was written as much for everyday people who are wrestling with what is the church about and why should I care and what is the church for? There's so many folks that I think are both in our congregations or used to be who honestly are just, they're asking and maybe they don't even know it, but the question beneath the question is, I don't know what the church is for. And so frankly, you've lost my attention. And so I feel like if we can say friends, like, the church is about God's dream in our everyday life. And this dream affects everything. It upends everything. There's not a bigger story on the planet. It gets at reimagining our entire economy. It's directly talking about our civic engagement. It is talking about the environment. It's talking about our marriages and how we get along and our kids. It's everything. And it's right here. That I think is compelling and more compelling, at least for me, than how do I get people into my church building. I just think that so many people are exhausted by that. And mm. frankly, I think we'll maybe get into this later, but I think that the pandemic is only going to accelerate that kind of wondering and questioning about what the church is and what it's for. And if we just keep focusing back on the church as the why and production value and who's coolest. I mean, I know this is not the only game, but it can feel that way sometimes, particularly yeah. when pastors feel a bit, well, you know, this new church moved into town or there's this new church plant or there's all kinds of competitive things that creep in. We all know that. Yeah. I just, I just want to say that's not the big story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I love that you keep, you know, articulating that. I think so much of what the world is saying is like, what is the church against seems to be so much more clear than what is the church actually for? That's for both people in the church and outside the church as well. But there was one line in the book at the beginning of the book that you wrote that really stuck with me in a great way. And I, I would love for you to unpack this a little bit further. You said more than changing what we do, we first need to change what we see. What do you mean by that? Why is that important? Well, um, I think it precedes all healthy new action. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, Jesus talks about, a lot about this of, well, how do you see it? And I, I think that's a really provocative question. We have all been given kind of a default of how we see everything. We all have this lens, whether we wear glasses or not, we've all through our own narratives through our our everyday life, we take on a lens and that's how we see the world. And I think the more foundational changes that can last can be when we are jarred a little bit and we're like, wait, maybe I need to see this a little bit differently. Mm. And I also mean this quite literally because if folks know about 
uh, some of the work that I've done with the parish collective, or perhaps they've read the new parish earlier. They know that I'm a, you know, card carrying neighborhood guy. Mm -hmm. And I literally, part of what I'm trying to get at with this book is we literally need to try and see and visualize what God is up to in our actual everyday lives. And I really feel like before we start taking risks and doing new things, we have to check ourselves in a sense and say, well, how do we see it? How does God see it? How do you see it? Uh, I think that kind of curiosity is going to be really critical. In fact, there's a, a friend of mine, uh, an incredible pastor in East Harlem. His name is Jose Humphreys. He, I think he coined the phrase called sacred curiosity. Mm. And I feel like that gets at it. Like if we can have a sacred curiosity about our entire lives, about our congregations, about the neighborhoods that we inhabit, I think that's almost always going to precede the kinds of sustainable changes that God is calling forth. talking before we pressed record here on this conversation that I mean ministry was hard before the pandemic right I mean I always go back to Peter Drucker you know not really a faith background he said the four most difficult uh, positions leadership positions in North America after studying all the systems president of the United States president of university president of a hospital local church pastor all this was pre-pandemic so then this hits and we're all exhausted and so I think when people hear what you're saying my guess is that people would say Tim, I'm with you. That's great. But I'm exhausted right now to have to try to reorient my own thinking or my, my I, maybe I get it, but my people right now, I'm just trying to hang on. So it is good news, but I'm wondering if you can articulate, well, how is this good news to the weary pastor right now in the midst of the fall where it's just exhausting? Yeah. It sure is. So, I mean, just off the, <laughs> I totally get that. Like, <laughs> I'm glad you're excited about this, Tim. Uh, I need a nap. I don't just need a nap. I need to like go into a coma. Uh, I totally get that. Um, and feel that way myself a lot of times. Even mm-hmm. I've got young kids and things are crazy and some neighborhood businesses and um, amongst trying to help start a church. And um, so, I mean, maybe the first thing I would say is... That sounds exhausting. Young family, neighborhood businesses, trying to get a church off the ground. My goodness, you yeah, do need more than a nap. Exactly. There's a lot. There's a lot. So, I mean, I think, and maybe I'm speaking to myself here, if you can get some rest, like if you're in a place where your yeah. congregation can see that or your family can, or there's, there's any margin whatsoever, take it. Please mm. take it. Mm. Um... The second thing I guess I would say is, um, given the conversation that we've been having today, easier said than done. So again, I'm, I'm also saying this to myself, but it is God's work. And I know that sounds cliched, but um, we can't, the things that we long to see the most, even if it is our, our church just hanging on for one more month, one more year, it is God's work. Um, it has to be received as gift. We cannot just crank and crank and crank. There is no technique to just keep it going. It's mm-hmm. part of why being a pastor is so hard. Mm. And I guess the third thing is, uh, we were talking about this earlier. 
I literally, so my wife and I own a, a neighborhood coffee shop and we literally had the, this phrase put on t-shirts and actually crop tops, uh, which have sold out, not, <laughs> not to plant that visual, uh, <laughs> minds, but they have sold out. So uh, of this phrase, he's my favorite theologian of the moment, both because he's somewhat new to me. And also because I feel like his work is just so powerful this, for this moment for the church. And certainly with all of the kind of reawakening many of us are doing around racial injustice, but his name is Dr. Willie James Jennings. And he has this quote I've heard from him a number of times where he says that hope is a discipline. So you've put that on a t-shirt. Hope is a discipline. Uh, Our coffee shop is called Resistencia Coffee and we kind of define resistance or resistencia. We live in a nearly uh, primarily uh, Latino, Latina neighborhood. And um, we define resistance as um, a community of people rising up against adversity with relentless hope. So that's like on the wall, literally. And so um, hope as a discipline, hope is a discipline. I feel like that is a word for right now because Mm. it's not a feeling necessarily it is what we cling to it is as important as oxygen we find our hope in the risen christ and what god is doing but it's a discipline and boy is it right now but we cannot give it up Uh, and that is not just to survive another day it's not just to keep the doors open or (laughs) our zoom church open for another month we have to cling to this idea that hopes the discipline. I certainly am. So I hope that listeners right now are like, yeah, it's true. And it's so that tension of it is a gift. God is at work and it takes grit. Mm. It's a discipline. Mm. Let's keep drilling down into that because obviously 2020 has brought so many things that are, haven't been on our bingo cards. You're a pastor. How do you personally, even with young kids and owning a neighborhood business and trying to start a church and then writing a book, like all this is exhausting. What are the ways in which you cultivate and be as ridiculously practical as you can? How do you cultivate the discipline of hope in your own life? Such a great question. Well, um, some of the classic things and I'm to be like really practical, uh, I want to be the most grateful person alive, Mm. personal mantra of mine. And one of the ways that I try and get after that is not just kind of keeping a gratitude journal, which I think is a phenomenal spiritual formation practice, but, um, I try and keep hope alive by paying attention to the ridiculous amount of gifts that are present in my everyday life, whether that Mm -hmm. is my three-year-old's chuckle and laughter, if it's like the embrace of my wife, if it's a hot cup of coffee, um, these are honestly like quite sacred gifts. And so I think in that most ordinary of ways, to be thanking God for as many gifts every day that we can conceivably imagine. Mm -hmm. And if we have the eyes to see it for me anyway, it's like this delightful, joyful, never ending quest because they literally all all around us. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty practical. I, um, I definitely feel like it's more and more important for me. I'm a morning person. Part of that goes with having kids, but, um, (laughs) 
it's increasingly, I feel the difference within a given day and certainly a week. If I don't have some time to be quiet, to be with God, to spend some time in scripture, uh, kind of to kind of prayerful meditation, Hmm. um, to be thinking and, and kind of working hard for the long game. Um, here's a practical idea that people have maybe done. Um, I don't know where I heard about this. It's kind of a, I don't know, like a business idea and perhaps, but, or like almost like a personal, how do you define your life's vocation kind of a thing. But, um, I was encouraged a little while back to write my own eulogy. Yeah. And I found that to be an incredible practice, not just once, but to go back to it, like literally like write it down as though it's being written, it's being read by, say, a dear friend. And um, it's given me the practice of not just, I mean, it might sound a bit morbid, but death clears things up quickly, right? <laughs> and so not only does that help clarify you know, what I want to be known for and how I want to be with my family. It keeps me focused on the long game. And um, particularly with all of the rising anxieties that we're feeling, not just within the church, but with the pandemic, with the mounting election that's so polarizing, which then filters into our congregations and, you know, all of that, if possible, the more that we can be focused on the long game, like your entire life, the better. And um, I think that's a practice that we need to just make routine. Maybe it's not like the whole eulogy thing, but um, that's the kind of a thing where amongst friends, amongst colleagues, I think that we need to keep asking us each other those kinds of questions. Where, do, How do you want to finish? Where do you want to end? Where do you want to be? What, what are the stories you want to tell on a rocking chair if you make it to 75, 85 years old? Whose lives do you want to be a part of? Um, I just feel like I need that right now amongst the frenetic, mm. anxious chaos. Mm, yeah. And I think it was in the road to character, David Brooks's book. He said there are two types, right? There's resume characteristics and their eulogy characteristics. And he said, we just overemphasize so much of our resume characteristics, skilled here, win here, graduated from there. And yet we don't talk about what you're talking about, the eulogy characteristics. That's what really marks our character and what yeah. we're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I, I've done that before too. And when I coach leaders, you know, the whole like, you know, write your obituary, your eulogy is daunting. Some people say, I loved it. I, I cried my way through it. Some people say, I hate it. I don't even want to think about my death. You know, it's amazing how emotional it is for people yep. on that. And and yet with the eulogy, I also carry this thing, um, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, uh, who was one of the Moravian leaders here, just about an hour north of us here in Bethlehem, PA. He said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And I just find that to be so interesting, that balance of like, die, how do I die to myself and yet really focus on the long game legacy? I think both are important. But how do we lose ourselves in Christ and yet say, I want to be remembered for this? I don't know. There's some sort of tension held in that. But I, I agree. I think that is important. What a, JR, I think you've 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 brought this up as such a a truly glorious paradox because of course you just brought up his name. Right. We're remembering him. <laughs> um, and where so he was and his legacy. Um, and yet absolutely. Um, 
Absolutely. Wow, that's that's fascinating, Tim. Like, yeah, he's remembered because he said he wanted to be forgotten. <laughs> yes. Fascinating. Yes. Fascinating. Life is paradox. So, yeah, that's uh, just in these last couple of minutes together. What do you do when you're and this this may require uh, an extra dose of vulnerability here, but. You know, if hope is a discipline, what do you do when you feel undisciplined? What do you do when you feel like, you know what? I don't know if I can do this anymore. I just want to throw in the towel. Um, how do you talk yourself off the ledge or how do you have others do that? You know, because that's that's real. I mean, so real. it may not be the point you wrote your resignation to quit, you know, being a pastor. But at your lowest moment, what what brought you back? Well, such a good question. Um, I think probably two things, uh, it it actually does get to that. Who do you most want to be and become? Mm -hmm. Because I think all of us need, and and take a shot at me if this sounds again, like too much of a Sunday school answer, but when I'm at my lowest, what I'm almost always doing is forgetting who I am and whose I am and what I'm here for. It all feels up for grabs. It all feels impossible. And it's in those moments that I need to have the vulnerability, not just to say that, but I'm I'm thinking specifically with my wife and close friends and close colleagues to be honest and say, I'm not quite sure what I'm, I can do here. And without those friends and and in this case, family, yeah, I don't know what I would necessarily do. I mean, what, what options do we have? And I think that this is something that we absolutely have to be for each other. It's one of the great tragedies of the pastorate. We already live in the most individualized culture, probably in the history of the world. And then to be a pastor is almost by default to be more lonely than the everyday person. Probably not necessarily, but probably. And so that like, whether it is your spouse or partner, a handful of close friends, I feel like that that is the sacred gift that can literally remind us who we are Mm. and why Mm. we should keep going or to gently say, you don't need to, you know, you've, you've been at this for a long time and maybe God is calling you to something else or Mm. what the way that you're trying to hold on, it's not Mm. serving you. Um, Mm. Honestly, it's been hard to watch. Um, You've been spinning your wheels getting more and more anxious, more and more angry, more and more, whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. So for me, I kind of, um, it takes me quite a while to get there because I will, um, try and fix it myself. I'm also, a. am um, I'm not a, like, I've got a lot of friends that are way more into the Enneagram than I am, but I, <laughs> I do know that I'm an Enneagram seven. And uh-huh. so, I'm pretty good at avoiding pain anyway. Mm-hmm. That's part of what sevens do. And I um, can definitely escape into the next new venture and the next 
trip and the next idea uh, as a numbing uh, agent against the pain that I actually should be feeling and dealing with. Yeah. But again, that's where those close relationships are so critical. So yeah. I guess that would be, that, that's how it is for me. And that would be, I guess, my longing and prayer for friends that are listening in right now. Like who, yeah. who are those people that you can trust enough to, to let them know that you're, you're falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, last question, Tim, and this has been such a fruitful conversation. It always is, whether we're eating El Salvadorian food in Philadelphia together <laughs> or some other venture, but, um, well, and you've said a lot to provide encouragement for pastors, but you know, most pastors that are tuning in here are discouraged. They're, they are thinking about quitting. They are, not not most, but we've at least thought th- seriously about it at some point, and maybe even more so now in the midst of this time. What what would you want to say to that discouraged or that worn out pastor right now, just as a form of encouragement? Not a flimsy Christian Hallmark card, of course, but just uh, maybe it's just a reminder of what we already know, but of just being rooted in some sort of discipline of hope, as we talk, we've talked about. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked to preach at a friend's uh, church, uh, you know, via recording, but um, it was one of those times, a lot of listeners have probably done this before, where there wasn't a lectionary text or they weren't working through a particular, you know, series with an assigned text. And so they just said, um, pick whatever text you want, let us know. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. It's, you know, seasons are changing, schools kind of going back. I mean, in our case, really, I mean, things are weird and getting weirder. I was exhausted and, um, and, and maybe still am, but I was like, right, I know exactly where I'm going. So this would be, I guess, my, in some ways, benediction for the day. Uh, and mm. it's something that I want to memorize. In fact, maybe this could be kind of a Monday morning podcast uh, challenge for a bunch of us huh. to do this, like maybe between now and the end of the year. Um, I went to the Sermon on the Mount, in, you know, which is in Matthew 5, and particularly um, how it's written by Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. So I guess this is what I would say. Uh, and this is also what I've been clinging to in trying to keep hope a discipline. Here's how he says the, these at least first couple of lines. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost when you feel like you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I mean, I just feel like, yeah, that I need to read those words. I need to memorize those words. I need to let them like sink in. And so maybe for other listeners right now that are just feeling completely exhausted, maybe those words of Jesus can give us new life. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, Tim, Thanks so much for being on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. So grateful for you and the great work that you're doing in the Pacific Northwest. And I look forward to the next time we can sit down and have some some more El Salvadorian food together. I can't wait to be with us. Talk to you later. Okay.